Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal. I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. And uh, today um, we thought we'd title the, um, the podcast Macro Hysteria, given uh, all the macro talk that we've had, and I'll say exhausting macro talk we've had over the last three or four weeks. And uh, to uh, share this journey with me today is Michael Leithhead, who is the Head of Global Fixed Income at EFG. Thanks, Moses. It's very good to be back, especially with all of these things going on. It's an interesting time. Absolutely. It has been very, very uh, tricky. So um, uh, at, at the time this podcast was, uh, was, um, was recorded, um, it is uh, on a Thursday, the uh, 27th of January, and uh, the S&P 500 has, as it stands today, could change, a few more days left uh, in January, uh, stands today is the worst January since we could uh, go back to 1928. Um, so uh, pretty, pretty tricky, pretty difficult uh, January. And, you know, January, January over the last decade, uh, we've had six negative Januaries and four um, positive Januaries. So there's no kind of real direction as to the overall direction of the year, but uh, certainly uh, as we stand today, um, you know, it's been a pretty rough start to the year. And um, what's been the key driver to this, um, uh, to this um, you know, drawdown in, in, in uh, the S&P and other markets has been, first of all, maybe the construction of the S&P 500 being very much kind of growth orientated. Um, and also, uh, you know, a lot of the stronger performance that we saw over the course of the last 12 months, particularly from the very large companies uh, in the US. The key driver, obviously, to the moves has been this fear of uh, the Fed starting to raise interest rates um, in an environment where we still have some tricky economic conditions. Um, some maybe the, some of the backward looking data around coronavirus has, uh, uh, and Omicron in particular has been uh, a little bit uh, softer. So there is this little bit of little fear that the Fed is potentially going to make a mistake. Now, as we stand today, there are five Fed rate hikes priced in for 2022. Um, we've just had the FOMC meeting and the press conference uh, yesterday, uh, and the general assessment only on the statement was, uh, I'll say, a bit more balanced and in line with, say, four rate hikes of the year. Uh, but uh, the press conference um, Powell seemed to have got battered by all the questions uh, and um, particularly around the path of interest rates and inflation, which is obviously elevated at the moment, uh, primarily driven by uh, supply uh, side constraints, um, but also the fear that this becomes a, a permanent situation. I think in addition to that uh, point is that um, uh, with inflation uh, pretty high, particularly low-end um, in income um, households find it much harder to cope with higher inflation. And that's exactly the constituency that typically votes uh, Democrats. And of course, as we heard last week from Dan Clifton, we, um, um, you know, we have a, a midterm in November and um, generally um, you know, high inflation going into that midterm would not be a pretty sight for the Democrats in that midterm. At the moment, Democrats are expected to lose um, the House uh, and 50-50 uh, at the moment uh, on the Senate. 
Uh, but um, uh, certainly the momentum is against Democrats, um, driven by you know, high inflation, which is the number one polling concern at this point in time. And obviously Powell was reacting to that uh, at the FOMC meeting. So the key, key is whether we are four or indeed five rate hikes. Uh, obviously, the short end of the curve is um, sold off. This is the two years and five years part of the curve. The long end is, i.e. 10 to 30, has stayed relatively flat, and we've seen this flattening of the yield curve. At the moment, as um, um, Powell also mentioned on the conference call, is still positively slope around 75 basis points, so nothing to panic about from an inversion or even flat yield curve, but it's still these are the concerns that are being raised at this point in time. Um, and quite frankly, very much against the trend of earnings, and the overall macro forecasts that are for above trend growth rate uh, for this year. So certainly does um, uh, create some opportunities, as there always is in volatility. And indeed, I always like to remind um, listeners and indeed investors in our strategies and products that um, volatility creates opportunity. In fact, if there was no volatility, there would be no opportunity. So uh, um, so hopefully some of these um, um some of these kind of more volatile conditions, you know, create um, uh, create the opportunities for us to uh, to take advantage of. So uh, that's my very brief summary of uh, of the last um, few few days. Uh, but um, um, much more knowledgeable than me is obviously Michael. Uh, so uh, Michael, on what's your assessment of um, um, Powell and assessment of the rate path, certainly for the next. Uh, 12 months or so i think i think the main takeaway at least for me yesterday from um from the press conference and from the statement was really that um you know the fed is quite data dependent in terms of you know the outcome on 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 rates and i think as you mentioned there was a lot of pressure to sound very hawkish from the questions um but you know, what's very obvious is that I think the economic uncertainty around how long supply chain issues will last, you know, how, how much of this inflation feeds into wage growth, et cetera, has, um, has obviously um, meant that the, the Fed is now having to react a bit quicker than it had anticipated last year. And obviously the market's taking that as a bit of a, a surprise, I think. But you, we, should, we shouldn't remember that actually the Fed's on a very loose footing today and the question is how quickly do they need to get back to sort of equilibrium interest rates and what level is that equilibrium interest rate and i think when you look at the market two years as you mentioned you know close to 120 on the on the two year that's implying that basically we're getting back to sort of two percent interest rates by uh, the end of 2023 so that in itself uh, would probably put the fed back to sort of a neutral stance um and if you look at the long end of the curve, then, you know, with 10 years sort of in the range of sort of 180 to two, that's essentially saying this is where we think the equilibrium is. So I think in terms of the pace, my interpretation is there's still a lot of data to come out and the Fed will be much more reactive and predicting exactly what that path will look like is pretty tricky. When you look at inflation, I think, you know, Stefan and uh, Daniel have done some great work in terms of the base effects. There is a sort of year-on-year -year comparison factor, which means that probably come the summer, if, if inflation sort of stabilizes and prices stabilize from here, even at a higher level than, you know, the target 2%, 
then actually headline inflation is coming down. And those sort of pressures, as you mentioned, around um, the politics of the situation, around um, perhaps sentiment in the market change, because we're now not talking about rising inflation, we're talking about you know, declining, um, declining inflation. And so it becomes a bit more of a comfortable position perhaps for the Fed to be in, in terms of how they assess where they need to go with the next couple of rate hikes or whatever it might be. So I think, you know, it's, it's quite early to tell. And I think perhaps, you know, what um, Chair Powell is essentially trying to do is to make sure that he maintains rhetoric, which is curbing inflation expectations now so that he, they don't get away from him in the future. So I think the market's kind of saying, you know, we expect over time, you know, neutral rates to be around the 2% mark. We don't see any structural concerns there, but obviously we're going to front load the interest rate hikes because we think there's more, there's a higher probability from what we've seen. So I think your a couple of points uh, that you made of, uh, are interesting and probably we need to pick up on. So uh, at two-year rates at uh, around 1.2, as you said, take the average over the period, you're looking at um, uh, already a 2% um, uh, Fed funds rate uh, in 2023. Um, end, of end of 23, exactly. So, um, um, so we're, in terms of where the bond market is poised, that is the core assumption uh, as we understand it today. Um, um, and of course, as inflation data starts to come out um, and uh, you know, the base effects are clearly quite strong, supply constraints are clearly, clearly quite strong. I, I think I'll just add here, they're talking to uh, Jonathan Rowitz and the, uh, our equity analyst team, virtually not a, every company has talked about supply side constraints in their earnings calls. Um, and virtually all of them are saying sometime in 2022, they'll ease up. And, and most of them rather lazily have said it'll be the end of 2022 rather than being a bit more precise around that because they themselves don't have any um, idea of when those supply side uh, constraints come through. So as that inflation runs off, it becomes a much more even debate than, oh, there will be five rate hikes now and another you know, three or four next year to get us to 2% as quickly as possible. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, the point you make, if you look at inflation swaps, then you look at what's priced into the market. The expectations are that inflation essentially is going to run hot for the next two years at least. Um, so actually what's priced into the market sort of one year ahead is still inflation in the region of 3% or more. Mm. So, you know, I, don't, I think the market's pricing in quite a lot of that um, supply chain uh, pressure. Right. Yeah. Now, um, one of the things that um, uh, probably is emboldened Powell to be maybe a little bit more hawkish uh, has been uh, credit spreads, uh, given that spreads generally are quite, uh, quite tight and uh, not really suggesting there are some tightening financial conditions. Um, what are your thoughts around that? And, you know, what would start to make you a little bit nervous around that narrative? I guess, you know, at the moment, the if we look at credit spreads where they are, we've seen a bit of volatility over the last couple of months. Um, you know, things looked pretty stable for most of 2021. And then we sort of got into the back end of um, uh, 20, sorry, the back end of 2021. And I guess we had Omicron sort of November time. And that was a initial step in kind of credit spreads, both um, in terms of, uh, you know, high yield and investment grade. 
So we saw a bit of volatility there. And because it was a bit of a growth shock, we saw rates come down. And essentially, that was the driver of spread widening. And then we, at the same time, we had this kind of, um, I guess, surprise from the Fed in sort of late, uh, the later part of the year, as was the way the market took it a little bit. But um, when when we saw treasuries go, you know, a little bit higher, spreads didn't contract as they might do otherwise when you sort of have a bit of a relief around the growth risks. So the spreads remained relatively elevated relative to the year, which had been quite low. Um, but in the context of, you know, long-term averages, they're extremely tight still. So there has been a bit of volatility. We've seen credit spreads widen a little bit um, in, in, in the last uh, couple of weeks. But to me, it's more about market risk premium than it's about macroeconomic risk premium. So what do I mean by that? I mean, we've seen the volatility mentioned in the equity market. So risk premiums in assets go up because people are concerned about losses, et cetera. Um, and that, that goes for fixed income markets as well. Um, but it's not, you know, spreads are not at levels where you would be concerned that, um, that financial conditions are materially tightening. So, you know, credit spreads in the US still remain quite tight in high yield. We've moved about, you know, 10 or 20 basis points wider, maybe in high yield. It's not, they're not at levels where you'd be concerned that default rates are going to risk rise or anything like that. It's, it's merely sort of short-term volatility. And to be honest with you, you kind of expect that when you get this regime change in terms of uh, monetary policy, we saw it in the previous cycle. Um, and I don't think it's anything abnormal. And I don't think it's something that the Fed would worry about unless they saw, you know, broader, uh, measures of uh, financial tightening, maybe in the banks or or in financial markets as well. So I think in some respects, it sort of, um, I don't think there'd be any concern from the Fed uh, in that respect. Mm. That certainly emboldens them to uh, to be maybe a little bit more, uh, you know, or, or for to be more hawkish uh, without it creating greater trouble for them down, down the line. Um, one of the questions that uh, certainly we saw overnight uh, particularly in um, um, Hong Kong uh, and Asia, where you have interest rate policies tied to the dollar, but economic situation is tied to China. And you've got this sort of dual problem, if you like, where policy potentially could be too tight for them. Um, um, and obviously, we've already seen some of that problem around kind of real estate and and uh, some of those offshore bonds uh, of Chinese companies. But um, uh, any thoughts around, you know, these challenges of, you know, rate policy that's different to the economic environment that they, that they are finding themselves in? I mean, I guess if you look at global growth rates generally, um, then, you know, they're generally above trend at the moment. And I think, you know, our forecast of a growth rate to be above trend. And if I look at some of the major economies in Asia, I think, um, you know, they're generally showing a pickup. So I think, yes, policy tightening is, um, you know, is potentially a concern where you're tied to um, where you're tied to the U.S., but I think a lot of those economies also have, you know, stabilization mechanisms. They have very low debt to GDP and they have very, you know, they've been running these systems for a very long time. So I guess in terms of their, you know, that stability, it wouldn't be something that would be unsettling from a more um, concerning perspective. Um, and, you know, if you look at the Middle East where you're tied to 
uh, you're tied to the dollar and interest rates typically move in line with um, with US policy, that's not really been a concern, um, I guess, potentially because you do have this pickup in growth, which in the Middle East is also linked to oil prices, et cetera. So um, I guess there's not such a, con- I haven't seen any sort of concerns within the in the bond markets on on that sort of tightening at this point in time. Mm. So one to, to watch out for. Um, in terms of the um, uh, Chinese real estate sector, obviously that's been a major cons- source of concern for investors over the course of the last six months or so, maybe a bit longer than that. But what are your thoughts uh, as we stand today with respect to um, some of those Chinese credits that have really found it um, difficult over the course of the last few months? Yeah, I mean, I, I my sense is that things are there's starting to be a bit of change. Um, today, for example, we saw a investment grade um, Chinese real estate name who had been on the more stress side, um, Sino Ocean, um, come to the market and try and tap one of their dollar bonds. And so, you know, I haven't seen the results of that yet, but essentially that to me is a signal that perhaps, you know, liquidity conditions are starting to ease. And I think that's been driven by a slightly slight change in the policy response in the last month or so. So what we saw at the start of the year was um, Country Garden, uh, headlines around Country Garden not being able to place a convertible bond, for example. And that sort of drove um, bond prices down, concerns that liquidity, that even the best quality or the highest rated names in the sector couldn't you know, raise um, uh, liquidity, um, prompted a big sell-off. So you saw you know, at that point in time, when the stress picked up, the Chinese authorities then ratcheted up things. You know, we saw cuts in interest rates. And the big one for the for the market was really um, discussion of whether or not, uh, you know, cash that was in escrow could be used to um, to repay debts and, and, and things like that so for, for liquidity purposes, essentially. And that was taken as a, a, a signal that um, potentially, you know, there were much more supportive measures coming in. And then on top of that, you've had um, the government sort of press the, SO, the, the, the state-owned enterprises to um, make asset purchases from, um, from more uh, troubled um, uh, property developers. So there are these signs that certainly, um, you know, the, the conditions are perhaps starting to, to tilt the other way. And we've seen a more substantial, you know, we've seen a more significant rally in a lot of names it's still a very volatile ride at the moment. Um, you know, every time there's a negative headline around um, around sort of debt levels or you know negotiations with with creditors or whatever it might be, you see you know gap in pricing, and I think that's a function of the limited risk appetite at the moment. But it would be interesting to see, I think, after Chinese New Year, whether or not those measures are uh, are, are more significant. Mm-hmm. So um, how does this kind of really play out from a credit perspective? So let's take an example of uh, Evergrande, right? What's happened with Evergrande as it stands today and, and what's the kind of forecast of how do the Chinese government resolve a systemically important real estate company? So I think in this, what we've, um, what we've seen is that um, I think a lot of the assets are being sold or transferred to government hands. The 
government has stepped in to the management of the company essentially and said this is the way we want to resolve it from a private debt perspective from a creditor's perspective the question is how do they restructure so i think the priority for the government is really to make sure the you know contractors get paid the um, properties get delivered to the to the um, private citizens etc um, and i think what we'll see is a restructure of the debt so it will emerge eventually you know as a much smaller company with a lot of the assets sold off probably to repay you know creditors higher up the stack and ultimately you know in the evergrande's case um you know be significant haircuts for uh investors so that there's no there's been no real restructure that's occurred at this point in time and i think Evergrande sort of forecasting they should be able to restructure in the next six months. So I guess over the next six months, we'll start to get a gauge of what the recoveries are like on, on distressed bonds. Um, another name that's been in the distress side has been Kaiser. And um, that, those bonds have been quite volatile on the back of kind of what the government would sell, what the government would, would, would um, uh, sort of, um, you know, what levels they would sell at, et cetera. So I think, I think we're still to sort of really get a, a good gauge on what the losses might look like on the defaulted ones, but in the ones where they they continue to be able to pay their debts and service their debts, you know, those bonds would recover once um, once liquidity conditions normalise a bit. So, um, so in essence, um, say an Evergrande bond, how, how much is it trading? You know, levels today, for example. So around sort of between sort of 15 and 20 cents on the dollar, right. essentially. So you've, you've had, you've, you've got a pretty su substantial haircut priced in. Right. Yeah. And so that is essentially a residual value. So whatever bond they restructured to, um, you're kind of left with, with uh, 15 to 20 cents and, and maybe more, um um when uh, essentially the chinese government's probably funding in a little bit more into that as well yeah i mean i think the uh, the test case will be what does where do you where are the exit yields and what does the exit package look like for creditors so at the moment the assumption is a lot of the good assets are going to be sold off and you're going to be left with um you know yeah you know, a, a relatively limited equity right. value of, of the company so the um so i think essentially once we sort of see what the Evergrande package might look like, or maybe there's another one coming out, then you, then you would, you get a better gauge of what your recoveries might be in that space. And, you know, in previous sort of restructurings, you know, there's been, you know, maybe you can make 60 cents on the dollar. So it, at those sort of levels, it's, it's, it, they're quite, you know, there could be a big asymmetric payoff, but it, Equally, they could be, they could be, you could lose 100%. Kind yeah, of sure. Yeah. Quite binary it's, outcomes. It's, it's optionality. Yeah. Um, what impact on spreads on other parts of Asia has the Chinese property sector had? So I know um, property in Hong Kong or um, uh, other Asian credits uh, or even credits um, such as, I don't know, Alibaba or, you know, those types of names within that they've just widened out in sympathy um or they've just generally stayed quite tight so i think obviously this um the spillover effects you know in terms of asia have been relatively limited because i think it's been isolated to the chinese property sector in terms of high yield so it still hasn't been any sort of systematic issue 
more broadly, the more important factor has been, I guess, what the Fed has been doing and the risk premium in the market. So you have seen some spread widening in Asia in sympathy with what's happened in the rest of the world. So it's, I don't think there's anything special there. But when you start to drill into, um, into the Chinese sectors, there is a very interesting phenomena, which is a lot of those private companies that you mentioned, the Alibabas, the Meituans, the, these types of names that are have been you know, were seen as very strong credits and used to trade inside a lot of um, uh, state-owned enterprises have actually widened out quite a lot. So Chinese investment-grade bonds actually look quite attractive on a relative basis to um, to say the US, if you were to take you know the average over time, and even if you look at sort of some of those tech names as well, the regulatory issues around Alibaba and ten cents you know, sale of assets and things like that have meant that there's a bit more of a discount and a risk premium built in now. Mm. That's interesting because, you know, the, I guess, conventional wisdom, something that, that uh, we've had is that, you know, China is not going to beat these companies up so much that they, uh, they default <laughs> in the future. Um, uh, you know, it, it's just completely counterproductive to whatever they're trying to achieve. No, I think it's, uh, I, I wouldn't put it in terms of pricing in defaults or anything like that, but obviously in terms of risk premium, people are worried about of the course, damage yeah. it could do to the balance sheet, I suppose. But with Alibaba's balance sheet, you wouldn't have thought there could be too much damage. No, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's move on to another controversy uh, plaguing us at the moment is around Russia and Ukraine. Um, and um, uh, what are your thoughts around, I guess, less the politics, but more about the credits and the impacts that they've had or that the, um, you know, potential invasion of Ukraine could have on those credits. So I guess, I think it's, it's quite an interesting one. I mean, if I was to take Russia, Russian spreads, if I take the CDS, the five-year CDS is widened about hundred basis points, you know, this year. So there's definitely a higher risk premium baked in there. But I think what it's telling you in terms of the absolute level, which is around 260 basis points, what's that that's telling you is there are concerns more around sort of the risk premium, what you're allowed to buy and what you're not allowed to buy, rather than a, a substantial risk of default. So the market's really concerned with what the sanctions might be if, if Russia invades. And I think probably most importantly, whether or not they're cut off from, you know, the financial system by, you know, uh, the, 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 the SWIFT payment system and what that would mean potentially for servicing debt and things like that. So Russia's ability to pay is absolutely not impacted by this. It's a question of how, how you know, is there a practical way they get around that if it, if it, if it's, if it becomes an issue to, you know, to, to, to manage these financial flows. The, in contrast, if you look at Ukraine, the risk obviously there is if you have a Russian invasion then that could be significantly disruptive to the economy. So we've seen much greater distress in the Ukrainian names, as you kind of anticipate, I suppose, um, and spreads have widened hundreds of basis points in comparison. So, you know, it, it's sort of, there's different sort of outcomes that could occur. If we have, uh, if you have no invasion, obviously Ukraine is the one that will rally, you know, the most. If you have an, a, an invasion and uh, Western sanctions are relatively light, then potentially Russia rallies and Ukraine, you know, is still um, quite, uh, you know, uh, distressed in many respects. So 
I guess in terms of the market reaction, you know, it's still a huge amount of uncertainty around what the outcome might be and whether this is posturing or whether or not people really believe that could get out of hand, I suppose. Mm. So I think, so, so what's priced in at the moment, uh, certainly as it pertains to Russia, not really a default, but merely, uh, and merely I say with a big M rather than a small M, but merely the fact that, um, um, swift and and other sanctions could make it very difficult for bondholders to actually get their money back or indeed the coupons yeah i mean i i guess you know the technicalities of it people aren't you know aren't entirely um, sure of yeah sure of yet because i mean we don't know what the sanctions might look like um and i think there's obviously you know big problems around you know the export systems and everything else and trade so that becomes a problem um as well and it's not clear whether or not that would have quite an impact on the european economy the sanctions might you know, have a significant impact on the Euro- european economy if we see you know oil supplies um reduced and we see um you know potentially the export market closed off so do the package really matters um as to what the impact is but i think the market's sort of saying look you know that's the risk rather than a um rather than a sort of default type scenario so in terms of the politics itself um obviously we've got this uh um i guess tripartite issue haven't we we've got the us on one side who are typically being uh, i always think of bad cop good cop or good cop bad cop so you got the europeans are the good cop and the americans are a bad cop um uh against uh, against russia and clearly uh putin's you know just absolutely amazing at at sort of uh, picking out vulnerabilities, I, I guess, post the withdrawal of Americans from Afghanistan. He's probably used that as a, as a good timing point to get his agenda across. You know, clearly his own agenda is to avoid um, Ukraine joining NATO and all the other um, uh, neighboring countries also ganging up on him in the future date. Um, how do you think that the politics of this kind of play out you know, in the end, obviously, there's a big level of uncertainty on that today. I mean, I think it's is obviously in uh, Russia's interest to keep Ukraine, um, you know, as a buffer essentially against NATO expansion. Question is, how do they do that? Um, I think it still would be a risky strategy to, you know, to to have any kind of full scale invasion. And I guess the question is, you know, whether you start to see those sort of proxy you know, return to conflict that we had in the Donbass region and things like that. So there are there are scenarios where perhaps, you know, military muscle gets flexed a little bit, but it doesn't create an all-out sort of invasion. Um, I think in terms of, you know, the best case scenario, <laughs> if you keep Ukraine unstable, actually, is probably the best case scenario for, for Putin in many respects, because that way it can't align with the West. But um, he doesn't. He doesn't risk, you know, um, undermining the economy, um, uh, you know, and 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 giving up quite a lot of leverage in terms of negotiation. So, mm. so that's um, you know, so this could be further drawn out than just a short term, quick fix, um, one way or the other. I don't. I don't think this is a quick fix. I mean, this has been going on for Already, seven yeah. or eight yeah, years, right? right? And yeah. it's not. It's it. It's going to be a game that probably plays out 
for much longer, I think. Yeah, it's interesting when you speak to Ukrainians and ask them about it. So, yeah, we've been talking about this for seven or eight years, and they seem to be a lot more nonplussed about it than maybe um, other Europeans um, uh, at this stage. But certainly, uh, you know, this is, uh, I, I guess, also classically, this is Putin testing out another president. <laughs> I think that's right. I mean, people have been telling me stories about how they, how, you know, Putin has tested Obama and Obama pushed back by, you know, threatening to seize all his assets over, overseas and everything else. And I mean, that's one of the outcomes that might actually happen here where, you know, you get much more severe sanctions on, on Russian officials, et cetera. Mm, uh, certainly one to watch out for very, um, you know, very carefully. Um, in terms of other uh, areas, you know, Latin America, I guess, beneficiary of high commodity prices, Middle East, of course, um, higher commodity prices. Any other sort of things that we need to just watch out for uh, in terms of, um, uh, you know, spreads or spread widening potentials? I mean, I think the chatting with um, with the high yield team, I think one of the interesting things we've noticed is a bit more of uh, dispersion coming in sort of the high yield market. So I mentioned that, you know, obviously the US has performed, uh, you know, we've seen this sort of bit of volatility over the last month. Um, what's been interesting is the energy sector has really been the outperformer. I guess you would expect to see that given yeah. where the oil price is, yep. but it's at relatively tight levels and that could be a source of potential, you know, sector underperformance in the future. Mm. I think the other thing in developed markets on the high yield side is, um, is also that um, uh, we've seen European high yield credit spreads widen out a little bit more. So there is this odd uh, di divergence between US and uh, European credit spreads, um, which perhaps is down to you know um, just the low levels of yield in 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 Europe relative to uh, relative to the US. So people when people get nervous, there's a bit more flow that way. But it's something interesting just to keep an eye on in terms of whether there's something, you know, more of a trend there or not, or whether we see this mean reversion where you, the gap between US and European spreads tighten, tighten in. I mean, one of the one of the other points is that there are these anomalies. I think it is driven by volatility and double Bs have slightly underperformed single Bs in terms of spread widening as well. So I think there are these types of opportunities that are, are popping up and particularly with the view that the economic cycles, you know, um, you've got plenty of legs to run on it and then high yield and double Bs would, would continue to perform. So um, there are those sort of divergences, which should, as you mentioned earlier, when there's volatility, there's opportunity to pick up. Obviously in these volatile times, uh, everything gets thrown out and then, uh, um, and then, you know, that obviously creates the opportunities. Where do you think from a sector and geographic region at the moment, do you think are the, the, the best opportunities? Let's start with high yield and then we'll talk about investment grade. I mean, I think, um, in terms of, uh, in terms of high yield, we, we think there are some opportunities in, in Europe and also with the sort of sustainable concept, there are some opportunities there to, to pick up on. From a, so from a geographical perspective, I think, you know, Europe is, is, is an attractive place to be, um, particularly with rates volatility in the US. Um, then in terms of, you know, sectoral sort of um, uh, biases, I suppose you know, it's more what we would avoid here, I think. And I think energy is probably the, the big one and the triple C segment where we see spreads as being relatively tight for the cycle. So it's more, I would say about ratings, quality and certain 
you know, uh, sectors like, like energy, where we think, you know, there's potential, there's not much upside um, and the risk is more to the skewed towards the downside. I mean, EM high yield has definitely been an area where there's been more volatility and the dispersion there has definitely grown as well over the last, uh, you know, couple of months as well. So we've seen, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, very weak economies underperform um, in sort of December. Some of them have stabilized places like Turkey, et cetera. Um, but there are sort of opportunities popping up in individual names, um, you know, for example, in Indian high yield, um, we think there are some good companies there that have probably, you know, recently issued bonds and typically they're the most liquid bonds and the things that people sell off the first. So spreads have widened out. So there are these individual opportunities, you know, arising in, in certain um, parts of the world in high yield where we think there's uh, you know opportunity to pick up uh, from just from market nervousness, if you like. And then on the investment grade, obviously a little bit harder to, uh, to to forecast but certainly one thing that i've noticed is that yield spreads for example in some of the funds that you run yield spreads have have really blown out and you know typically uh, and historically they've always been attractive buying opportunities what are what are your you know what are the areas are you specifically pinpointing uh, in, in in wealthy nations for example i think obviously in, in wealthy nations our focus is more towards those sort of high quality countries um, and I think what's been interesting has been that uh, long dated yields in some of those countries have, have widened out. So we look at, you know, certain names in um, in uh, the Middle East, even high quality names. There's a, a pipeline company called Galaxy, double A rated, very secure bond structure, but the bonds are trading like triple Bs. So we can take duration in those with, you know, with, with the backup in treasury yields, you kind of you know, there's there's a bit more to play with in terms of treasuries being a downside risk hedge again. But equally, when you've got a big cushion on spreads, you're not only getting um, that as a cushion against potentially, you know, stronger growth environment and um, and rising US treasury yields, but you're also getting the higher carry as well. So, you know, with longer dated bonds, you're sort of getting maybe four to five percent yields now in some cases in investment grade. And that is kind of an attractive entry point in for, for carrying our, in, in my opinion, um, if you can sort of ride out this, what might be some temporary volatility at the long end. So I think the yield, what we've seen in the past is that actually maybe you shouldn't be so scared of duration within a portfolio and actually having that as a source of yield and barbelling it with some high yield also it can generate you a attractive carry. And I think that's going to be the main driver of returns this year. So what we're really looking at um, is those sort of longer dated triple Bs, perhaps where you've got a bit more credit spread widening and um, and there's an opportunity to now to lock in, you know, higher yields. Well, certainly because a lot is priced in the long long end in terms of inflation and interest rate expectations, uh, and obviously the yield you spread you're getting is uh, is also really attractive. But you know, certainly four to five percent is actually quite attractive at the at the long end. And, it, and I guess in the end, it's all down to kind of portfolio construction that you actually know how you're, uh, how you're constructing your portfolio and, and how you're uh, generating sources of income and, and, and return. Um, in terms of um, a question that actually before we came on the podcast I, I'd received was one of the themes we had for 2022 was 
a mistake by central banks as the big as one of our big risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably didn't expect that big risk to come so soon in January. Um, as I mentioned earlier, maybe later on in the year we were we were kind of thinking that this once we already had one or two rate hikes before we before we had the the big the bigger risk. Very unusual for markets to be this volatile before even the first rate hike. And, and I, I find that slightly kind of odd and amusing. Uh, and part of the reason why I call this podcast macro hysteria is that um, people are just slightly hysterical about, uh, you know, what the first rate hike actually means. Um, people need to chill out a bit, but, but um, in terms of um, how do you protect, or in fact, how do you protect your fixed income portfolio in an environment where Powell makes a mistake? I think if, it depends on what you term a mistake, I suppose. But if we assume, if we assume, you know, it's something that actually constrains growth yeah. and let's say- Raises rates too quickly. Uh, uh, you know, what you would anticipate is, you know, actually duration to be a protective yeah. factor in that instance. So, you know, if, if, you know, as we mentioned earlier with inflation rates being high, if we suddenly see- you know, uh, release of supply chain constraints and suddenly there's, you know, capacity is back to, you know, way above what people are expecting, then, you know, perhaps inflation rates come down and suddenly we've tightened way too much. Then um, then you could see people getting worried that actually financial conditions have tightened or interest rate policies have gone too much. And then typically what we saw sort of going back, if you think to 2018, mm. 2019 was actually, you know, interest rate expectations have to come down to adjust and you get that benefit of duration. So as I mentioned, you know, that's where the protective element of having duration in your portfolio can come. So I think, I think that's why, you know, having investment grade actually as a staple part now yields have moved up is, is perhaps a a more attractive proposition. So let's take the other end of the equation. The power does nothing at all, which clearly is not the case given what we've heard yesterday from, from Powell. But just man, he does nothing on the inflation front and just lets it run a little bit more. What are the risks there? I mean, if you were to see, if you were to see, um, you know, the Fed do nothing in that environment, I think the market would get concerned. Essentially, that um, that you know perhaps uh, interest rates would need to move much more aggressively in the future, and that's the kind of scenario where you might expect to see a steepening in the yield curve. But partially driven by the fact that you know front end rates is going to are going to come down more aggressively. So we've seen a big backup as we mentioned with the two year. Mm-hmm. So if if suddenly policy wasn't going to move and people had priced in, you know, uh, no move for the next two years or one move for the next two years, then you'd expect that two year interest rate to drop to sort of thirty basis points or twenty basis points or whatever, mm-hmm. and then that drives a steepening, and perhaps the back end then starts to rise a little bit as well. So you get a much steeper yield curve in that scenario. But I mean, that's not a scenario I think we we foresee. Very very little very little chance of that scenario uh, at this at uh, this point in time. It's it's probably the first scenario that that I described as probably being the most likely scenario. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the scenario, I think a credible scenario is that we we see the Fed move, you know, a number of times and then take a pause to see really what the impact is and to evaluate whether or not you know supply chains are getting uh, loose or not, whether things are really flowing into wages. So, I think obviously the market likes to have one single straight line, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure that that's really the scenario that will play out in the end. I think potentially we could see. 
know, a number of rate hikes to calm sort of inflation concerns and to prove credibility, but then, you know, see how that plays out. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's exactly right. We, we may find that we have, say, three rate hikes and then, you know, uh, and if inflation data is indeed coming down at that time, Fed's got nothing to lose. It's just kind of wait and, and see what happens next. Because I, I think, um, you know, maybe the last comment I wanted to make today, which is that a lot of macroeconomists, strategists, people like us, you know, uh, who are, who are long-time kind of Fed watchers, the thing that um, certainly amuses us is there's a lot of people who seem to know a lot more than the Fed does, <laughs> which uh, which I always find quite quite hysterical because, uh, you know, uh, the Fed is, probably has some of the best economists and, and, and rate strategists around or certainly have access to them if they don't have them in-house. Um, much better than than uh, many other people, but somehow many other people have have better opinions than the Fed itself. It's like being a football pundit, Mose. It's like <laughs> sitting on the sidelines and in the studio, being able to sort of comment on what what um, Jose Mourinho or whatever would have would have done. So I think uh, being the armchair pundit is much easier sometimes. Uh, of course, absolutely, um, and I, I think that's probably a very fair assessment of uh, of what we've seen over the last. Um, couple of weeks uh, you know lots of people with high opinions um, but very little in terms of solutions um, and uh, you know as uh, Powell absolutely acknowledged that uh, he probably didn't know the solutions just yet either uh, given that the events have unfolded over the last couple of years yeah. um, um, you know no one has really any experience of uh, before and, uh, and and so we need to sort of just you know be flexible certainly in our thinking as to as to what that means. I think that's exactly right. I think there are a lot of unknown unknowns to borrow the old phrase um, and that you kind of have to observe what happens and and what the feedback loop is. And it's difficult for somebody who's in such a a senior position, has such influence on the market, probably needs to sound credible about the way things are going that actually turn around to people and say, look, we've got to to see what happens and then move accordingly. I suspect, as I said, the the point I made right at the beginning, Biden's policy agenda probably has a lot to to do with stuff at the moment as well. So, Michael, listen, thanks very much for that discussion. I thought it was very, very helpful. As always, I learned quite a lot from uh, talking to you. Uh, So uh, thanks for that. And uh, certainly, no doubt, we'll have you again on very soon as we try to... um, um, you know, uh, sort of navigate further rate hikes and uh, and uh, hopefully uh, uh, not too many scares as we move forward from here. Thanks for having me again, mate. Not at all. Uh, so with that, uh, we'll stop there. So uh, thank you very much uh, for listening to Beyond the Benchmark. As ever, if you have any questions, please drop us an email at beyond at fgam.com or indeed just pick up the phone and call us. Even better. Uh, So uh, thanks very much for listening and we'll speak to you next week.